So that's 1 Samuel chapter 4, and this is the 7th of August 2016. You know, just when I started coughing there, it reminded me of a meeting that I was told about. I wasn't actually at the meeting, but there was a great deal of what I would have termed heresy going on at the meeting. And uh, the, the speaker at the front was telling people that, you know, that people had demons in them and that the way to get rid of them was to cough. <laughs> and apparently you've never seen anybody try and not to cough in their lives. It just reminded me of that one. Cause <coughs> that was just a happy one. Anyway, getting past that bit of heresy. We looked at last week how Samuel had grown up in the ministry before the Lord and before men, how he was, he was being raised up to be that prophet and priest that Israel needed at this point in time. They were a disparate nation. They were a nation who were full of factions. They were a nation who were spiritually, physically, economically lost. If you want to put it in normal terms or up-to-date terms, inflation was running rampant. Food supplies were in limited supply. The people who came and offered their sacrifices to the Lord, if you were coming up the road with bulls and, and, <clears throat> and lambs, etc., to offer them as a sacrifice to the Lord, you were often ambushed uh, and the stuff taken off you because there were shortages and people were just turning to whatever their hands found to do. And so Samuel was raised up by God given to this woman Hannah who we saw in the first few chapters was a woman, a great godly woman of prayer who told the Lord if you'll do this for me Lord then I'll dedicate the boy to you and so we have here now at the end of chapter 3 Samuel who's been raised up in the ways of the Lord he's had the call of God in his life he hadn't recognised God's voice before God had never spoken to him and now we find that God speaks to Samuel. And Samuel says, Here I am, Lord, your servant heareth. And then the, the whole book changes pace here. Because we've now set the scene that Samuel, there's probably been about ten years passed between the end of chapter 3 and the beginning of chapter 4. Samuel is probably now 20 years old, maybe 25 years old. And it says at the start of chapter 4, Samuel's word came to all Israel. Now to me, we put the chapter numbers in for our own, our own convenience to find the places. But to me that verse really belongs to chapter 3. When we see how Samuel was raised up in the eyes of the Lord and he grew favour in the eyes of the Lord and he grew favour in the eyes of men. And that should finish it off And Samuel's word came to all Israel. In other words... Israel started to recognise that here was a leader that they could get behind. Here was someone who would bring some sort of physical, economic and spiritual prosperity to the people. But there's always a problem, isn't there? No matter how well we seem to be going forward, the devil always wants to knock us back. He always wants to put us back the way. And so chapter 4 in some measure deals with that. It says, Now the Israelites went out to fight against the Philistines, and the Israelites camped to Ebenezer, and the Philistines at Aphek. The Philistines deployed their forces to meet Israel, 
And as the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines who killed about 4,000 of them on the battlefield. Now this is not to say that Samuel, in fact Samuel is never mentioned in this chapter. It would appear just be reading this and just a wee bit of study that nobody ever actually approached Samuel as to what they should do in regards to the Philistines. Now, Israel at this time, there was no great world power like the Persians or the Babylonians or anything like that. So the biggest problem that Israel had as a nation were their near neighbours. And their near neighbours to the east were the Ammonites and the Moabites. That would be kind of modern day Jordan and down into the Saudi Arabian Peninsula. And in some measure, as a fighting force, Israel could hold their hand against these people because they had basically the same sort of weapons. But to the west of them, on the Gaza, were the Philistines. Now they were a different kettle of fish altogether. The Philistines were originally from Greece, from the island of Crete. And right at the point when Abraham was in the land, there were very few Philistines in Gaza. But they arrived in great numbers. When did they arrive? As soon as the children of Israel moved from coming out of Egypt and came into the promised land, so this invasion of the Philistines came from Crete and started to settle in five city-states in and around what we would know nowadays as the Gaza, the Gaza Strip. If you see towns like Ashkelon and Gath mentioned in the Old Testament, these were Philistine cities that were uh, heavily fortified. Now, the Philistines, I've said this already, but I need to put this in context for you. We've still got the same problem today. We've got the Palestinians living in Gaza, and they're still causing Israel problems. In 135 AD, the Emperor Hadrian, who built Hadrian's Wall down in England, by the way, it wasn't in Scotland, it was in England, Um, he built Hadrian's Wall, but he hated the Jews. This irrational hatred that people have for the Jewish people, Hadrian hated them. And he literally ploughed over Jerusalem. He, He destroyed it completely, and he built a temple to Jupiter, his God of war. And he chased all the Jews out of Jerusalem. And any that he found he would kill or imprison. And he wanted to really put an insult upon them. So the greatest insult he could do was he said to the locals, he said, so who were the biggest enemies of the Israelites? And they said, the Philistines. And of course, if you translate that into Latin, it becomes Palestine. And so he called the, the, the country Palestine. That was where it got its name. Because he wanted to insult the Jews by calling the place after their greatest enemies. And this in some measure is where Israel became the greatest enemies of the Philistines as well. was here in the book of Samuel. The the Philistines, although they had the same sort of weapons of war that Israel had, they had a big advantage in that they were constantly importing weapons and materials from Greece. There was a constant run of materials coming that way and they were the first known, what would you say, workers of iron, blacksmiths if you want to call it, who used iron and steel. And these iron and steel chariots, iron and steel helmets and swords, they were far superior to the bronze that the Israelites were using. Indeed, 
If you took a bronze sword and fought with a steel sword against it, you would break the bronze sword. You could literally split it in two. So they had this great problem. The Philistines were overwhelming in numbers and they were overwhelming in material. And so the Philistines decided to move against Israel. They had already subjugated quite a bit of Israel at this point in time, but they decided to move for the rest of it. To move from the south where they were down in the Gaza, they decided to move up to the north and take the whole land from them. If that sounds familiar today, that's exactly what it is. The Philistines are still trying to take over the land. So we find a situation where the Philistines here, the whole context of the thing is here that the Philistines were the aggressors in this. They started the war. They came against Israel because they thought they could defeat them. And so they did. Israel lost 4,000 men on that one day. There were great weeping and wailing. There was a lot of problems uh, with soldiers going back injured, dead, women who were following the, the Israelite army would have to go and collect their dead off the battlefield. It was just a shambles. The whole thing was just a shambles. And so at verse 3, when the soldiers returned to camp, the elders of Israel asked, Why did the Lord bring defeat on us today? before the Philistines. Let us bring the ark of the Lord's covenant from Shiloh, so that it may go with us and save us from the hand of our enemies. Now some translations say that he might go with us, but that's a mistranslation. It actually translates that it might go with us. So here we have a situation. They're desperately looking for a reason why God has not given them a victory. But they're not wanting to look at their own lives, either individually or corporately. They were idol worshippers. They worshipped some of the Philistine gods. They worshipped some of the Ammonite gods. They worshipped some of the Moabite gods. They were sacrificing their children in the fire. There was all sorts of things going on in Israel at the time. And yet they couldn't understand why God would not go out and give them victory. God would not go out and give them victory because God's not in the business of blessing sin. And that was basically where Israel was at this point in time. But somebody comes up with a good idea amongst the elders let's go and get the ark from Shiloh now Shiloh was the place about 20 miles from where they were at this point in time let's go and get the ark and we'll bring it here and if the soldiers see it God will go with us if we bring the ark because God's got to honour what we do there's no mention of consulting Eli who was the high priest or consulting Samuel But it's interesting here that it says, so that it may go with us. They were putting their trust in the ark of God rather than in the God of the ark. And sometimes that's the place that we find ourselves. Isn't it interesting that the ark was a box and here are people who want to put God in a box? We don't do that, don't we? We don't put God in a box. You know, the church is coming apart at the seams or or we'll do this program, or we'll do this ritual, or we'll do this formula, and and God will have to honour us in that. You know, God will have to come and help us because we're 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 doing the right things. Well, we're not doing the right things at times. Sometimes we're like the Israelites. We end up. We need to be down on our knees. We need to be a humble people. Now, I don't say that to condemn you. I say that to encourage you. God is a God of strength, a God of justice, a God who will bring 
the very legions of angels from heaven to fight on your side, but you have to be submitted to God. It has to be given over to Him. You can't put God in a box. You know, one of the single biggest things that I see today within the Christian church is the proliferation of Christian books that are just total heresy. Do you know that the second biggest book festival in the world is held in America and it's a Christian book festival? There are literally millions upon millions of books out there and they're all to do with, and I've written things down, the key to prosperity. How to get on board with God and get prosperity in your life. The key to spirituality. How to get God on board and get spiritualized in your life. The key to fervent prayer. How to be a fervent prayer. God's not looking for fervent prayers. In that sense of the word. He's looking for people that with a genuine heart will pray for others. That's fervent enough for God. He's not looking for people who are hyper-spiritual. He's looking for people that can bring a godly message to an earthly world. He's looking for people who will accept that the prosperity that he offers is a spiritual thing and not a physical thing. Many of these books are not good. Be careful. They put God in a box. It's It's like having... Aladdin's lamp on the table and you get into trouble and you find yourself in a bad place so you pick up the lamp and run it and the God comes out and says what can I do for you today? Never remind what you did yesterday or the day before or the fact that you've lost your prayer life or the fact that you've fell out with your neighbour or the fact that you've that you've just been generally out of contact with God, out of fellowship with God. I mean, I don't know how to put this. These books, if I want to call it that, or the, or the programs that go on, or, the, or the, the rituals that we get involved in, they magnify men's ideas as to how we should be with God. Your relationship with God is yours. It's unique to you. My prayer life is unique to me. I'll I'll probably pray in an entirely different way for you do. But that's not to say that you're wrong and I'm right. You know, we've had many books that are... uh, There's two or three that I just saw, Velvet Elvis by Rob Bell. And it's just nonsense. It's just nonsense. Books like Seven Steps to Receive the Holy Spirit... I mean, it's like the 12 steps of alcoholism, you know. You go through these 12 steps and that'll be you cured. It's just... Then we've got books like The Shack that bring across an idea that you don't really need to be saved if you read it properly. And then we've had a book way back in 2000 about the prayer of Jabez. As if that was going to be some... You just pray that and it's some kind of mantra that you just repeat and God will suddenly bless you. And then they get the people that say, well, you know, I need this and I need that. If I read my Bible every day, God will definitely bless me for that. That's the same thing that the Israelites were doing here. There's nothing wrong with reading your Bible every day. In fact, I would encourage it. There's nothing wrong with the Ark of the Covenant. It's a place where God has his throne on this earth at that point in time. 
But when it's misused, when it's used in the wrong way, then it becomes nothing more than a lucky charm. It's like running about with your rabbit's foot or whatever. One thing I want to say, and the Israelites found out very much to their cost here, that you can't blackmail God into doing things our way. It's his way or no way. What we have to be is like Hannah, who was Samuel's mother, who prayed for this child for years and years and years, and it never happened because her prayers were not in line with God's will. As soon as she recognized and humbled herself before the Lord and and prayed in line with God's will, things began to happen. And that's where we have to be. You don't have to be a world startling prayer. God will hear the prayer. God will hear more of the prayers that go up like, God help me, if it's said genuinely, if it's something that comes out of the heart. Do you remember the Pharisee in the New Testament? The Pharisee and the tax collector who stood up in the temple. And the Pharisee stood up with his hands in the air and looked up to God and says, Oh, thank you, God, that I'm not like other men. Thank you, God, that I'm holy and righteous. And the poor tax collector stood beside him and said, Lord, I'm not even fit to be here. Will you bless me? Who was justified? Jesus said. Who was justified? The self-righteous Pharisee or the repentant tax collector. We think too much of ourselves at times. It's easy when you're the leader of a church like I am. It would be easy to fall into that idea as to that you're better than everybody else. And that's not the truth. Don't ever look to me as being your example. Because I'll let you down. At some point in time I will let you down. And then all I would ask is that you just forgive me for it. Because many of the time people have let me down. And all, I've, all I can do is forgive. I don't, have, I don't have the privilege of saying, well, they treated me bad so I'm leaving. And I find that always very, very sad that we find in a situation in the church that people decide to leave because they feel they've been hard done by. Rather than sit down and talk about it and work through it, and there might be disagreements, there might be problems that need to be sorted. But as I say to you again, I don't have the privilege. God has called me to a place, the same in some measure as God has called Samuel to this place. I'm called to this place, and I don't have the privilege of just up sticks and walking away. Fellowship here is important to me. And it should be to all of us. We can't blackmail God into doing things our way. What does Psalm 51 say? It says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. You know, it's recognizing before God that there's nothing good in us except that which God has put there. That we're sinners saved by grace. And what a wonderful grace it is. A grace that passes all understanding. And, and people say to me, but, you know, we must be, have to do something. It was Jesus that came to this world to offer us salvation. It was him that did offer us salvation. It was him that died on the cross. It was him that was buried. And it was him after three days who rose from the dead. 
and declared salvation for all who would receive him. All you have to do is accept the gift and it's free. There's no cost to it, or at least the great cost that it was has been paid. So Israel felt the same way at this point in time. The same way as putting God in the box. If we take the ark, if we take the ark, then God is obliged to bless me. If I pray these certain ways, or I do this certain thing, or I perform this certain ritual, God is obliged. God is not obliged to any man. What they needed to do was repent and acknowledge their sin and ask God for forgiveness. As I say, they were looking for the ark of God to save them instead of looking for the God of the ark to save them. And so it goes on at verse 4 here. So the people sent men to Shiloh and they brought back the ark of the covenant of the Lord Almighty who was enthroned between the cherubim. And Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. Excuse me. When the children of Israel moved around the land, when Moses was leading them in the desert before they came into the Promised Land, the whole tabernacle had to be packed up and moved whenever God told them to move. Whenever that great Shekinah glory, that great pillar of fire and pillar of cloud moved, from the tabernacle and started to move out then the people knew we have to follow that that's the glory of God is going we have to follow and so they would pack everything up and the priest's job, the main job they they were to do was to take the Ark of the Covenant put the poles through the sort of rings on the side of this box put it up on their shoulders, four guys and they would cover over the Ark so that nobody could see it and they would carry it to its new destination And when God, through his Shekinah glory, stopped in a certain place, then they would rebuild the tabernacle. And the ark would be put in its place, and the mercy seat would be put on top of it. And God would appear to the high priest in the holy place. So these guys are doing the right thing when they're moving it. They've got the the, the poles through the rings on the side, they've covered the ark. But the guys that are carrying it, Hophni and Phinehas, Two of the most corrupt priests that ever walked the face of the earth and proposed the name of Jesus Christ as their Lord and Saviour. They were the worst. And yet, these two corrupt priests to carry it, everything looked right. If you saw it, you would say, oh, that's the two priests that are carrying the ark and they've got it covered and they've been very reverent and they've been very good about it. But the heart's attitude was all wrong. The heart attitude was all wrong. And that's the problem when we come with these, what would we say, demands from God. These blackmail situations that we bring God into. The heart's wrong. We don't need to bring the solution to God. At least I don't bring the solution to God. I bring the problem. And I've got plenty, believe me. But I bring the problem to God. It's God that brings the solution. I don't have a solution. I don't have a solution to people who are sick. I don't have a solution to people whose families are are broken, whose marriages are in pieces. I don't have a solution. But I know a man that does. And if I didn't, and I wasn't confident of that, then I wouldn't be here. Do you know, you remember back in the book of Exodus when Moses 
led the people and the people were complaining that there was no water. And God led them to the rock at Meribah. And they stood at the rock and the Lord said to Moses, Speak to the rock and ask it to bring forth refreshment and water to the people. But Moses was hard-hearted at that point in time and he was fed up with the children of Israel. And he called them a rebellious people. Look at these people you've given me, Lord, Moses said. They're, they're stiff-necked, they're rebellious. These are your people, they're no mine. And so Moses, when he went to the rock, he was angry. He was angry with the people. And so he took this staff and he struck the rock. Rather than speak to the rock, he struck the rock. And the water flowed out. And the people looked at Moses and they thought, great guy. Look at this. You know, definitely God's man. Look, he's done this, he's done that. And we've been blessed. Little did they know that that would cost Moses his job. After that, God said to him, you, Moses, my office now. And he told them, because, not because of your because you struck the rock or whatever, but because you misrepresented me before the people. I was not angry with the people. You were angry with the people. Because of that, you'll never enter the promised land. Now, what a condemnation to put on Moses. Not to say that he would never enter heaven, but he would never lead his people into this promised land that God had promised them. And the point I want to make in this is, when you look at these priests who are carrying the Ark of the Covenant here into the Israelite camp, it all looks good. When you look at Moses striking the rock, it all looks good. But don't base your judgment upon what you see. Base your judgment upon the heart attitude of the people that are doing it. There are people standing up in front of churches today whose hearts are wrong. And yet, everything looks right. Be careful. Be careful. And again, you know, when Moses, when the people were being disobedient and the Lord sent poisonous snakes amongst them and Moses was told to make a, a pole with a snake on it, a brass serpent. And he made it. And he said, all those that would look and trust God for it, would look upon the serpent, would be healed. Now, that serpent was a representation of Jesus Christ, and you think, how can Jesus Christ be a representation of a serpent? Because the Bible tells us that he became sin for us. The serpent is the symbol of sin. He took the sin on Calvary's cross. The pole was a, was a, a representation of the cross. He died for us. Those of us who were bitten by sin could look to him and be healed. It was a physical healing for the children of Israel, but it's a spiritual healing for us. That those of us who were bitten by sin, that can be healed. That spiritual, that spiritual relationship with God can be restored through Jesus Christ. But what did the children of Israel do? They ended up making the serpent and the pole an idol. They ended up worshipping it and God had to destroy it. Where is the Ark of the Covenant today? 
God has removed it because the Israelites turned it into an idol. I don't know where it is. It might be in heaven for all I know. The true Ark of the Covenant is in heaven. And that's Jesus Christ, him in whom the law is complete. When the Ark of the Lord's Covenant came into the camp at verse 5, all Israel raised such a great shout that the ground shook. And hearing the uproar, the Philistines asked, What's all this shouting about in the Hebrew camp? So they were obviously fairly close to each other. Usually with the type of battles that they fought, they would probably be within a mile or so of each other. <clears throat> and there would be constant skirmishes going on between their sort of uh, outriders and, and the Philistine outriders. <clears throat> Excuse me. Another demon out of me. <clears throat> <laughs> so there was a great shout because the ark was there. And the Philistines thought that God was there. And so did the Israelites. And that that was obviously not going to be the case when we find later. You know, to put it in a modern perspective, today we've got church services which are hyped up by loud music and great shouting. But is there any substance in it? I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it. If there's a true shout for the heart, then by all means... But if this is just some sort of hyped up thing to, to glorify the men who are standing at the front or to make an idol out of the worship, then there's something wrong with it. These people, these people, these Israelites, there was a great roar went up from them because the Ark of God was there. Nobody thought to ask, well, why is it here? Should it not be in Shiloh? Why have you brought it here? There was no instruction from Samuel or from Eli who were the two priests at the time. Eli being the very old guy and Samuel being the new prophet raised up. There was nobody that said, take the ark with you. <clears throat> As we saw in previous times when, when the ark was taken across the river Jordan, it was the Lord who had instituted it. When they marched round the walls of Jericho, it was the Lord that instituted it. Make sure the ark is covered and make sure you take it around the wall seven times. It was never the idea of men to take the ark into battle. But here it was being taken into battle. And the people accepted it. Why? Because they were desperate. They knew in some measure that they were in the, <coughs> excuse me, the wrong place spiritually. And they expected God to move on their behalf. God will not move on our behalf if we're standing in a sinful place. God will watch over you. God will keep you. God will hold your hand. But he will never intervene for you where sin is involved. Sin has to be repented of. And then that fellowship relationship is renewed. The Lord never leaves us or forsakes us. And that's where we talked about the, the grace of God before. That's where the grace comes in. No matter how sinful and how bad we think we are, we're only a prayer away. If that's a genuine heart prayer, Lord, I need to talk to you. Be honest with God. God knows you before you start speaking, so don't try and kid him on. Lord, I know I was bad to such and such, but you know, do you know what they did to me, Lord? He's not interested. What he wants to hear is, I know I was bad, Lord. End of story. 
Irrespective of what the other person's involved in, irrespective of what's happening, it's your problem, it's your heart situation that God's interested in. Leave him to deal with the other person. Leave him to deal with the people that are persecuting you. How many times have we seen God in a, in a battle situation with the Israelites where miraculously he has overcome the enemy before they've even struck a blow? And yet here, we'll bring the ark along. If we bring the ark along, if we say this certain prayer, if we, if we do this certain ritual, God's bound to respond because, you know, we can force him into the situation. Sorry. You always say to people, and that's what I enjoy about our own praise band, it is praise that we're getting from our praise band. It's not a concert. In very many churches today, they set up a concert. And it's not a concert. It's supposed to be a leading of people in worship. And in some measure, that's what was happening here as well. The worship was being developed out of, out of a wrong attitude. People were in desperate situations. I don't know whether you noticed, and I don't wish to overly criticise, but I, I saw a, a video of a, the Hillsong's Women's Conference in New York. There was probably about, I don't know, 12,000 women there. It was a women's conference. And I don't know whether you know that in Times Square in New York, there's a guy that runs about in his boxer shorts with a guitar over his front and the hat on and nothing else on. He calls himself the Naked Cowboy. And he's one of the sort of, what would you say, the, uh, the, the worthies of New York. That's one of the things that people run about looking after is for this naked cowboy. They had him at the Hillsong's Women's Conference. A guy with no clothes on, with his boxer shorts on and his guitar covering the, the main part of his humility. And they had him at the Women's Conference. And what did they do? They all cheered. I mean, what is that? We laugh. But thousands are being deceived. The Ark of the Covenant was brought in the camp. What did they do? They all cheered. Thousands were being deceived. You see, the problem is that the fellowship that you're in, nobody wants a fellowship like ours. We'll never be huge. Because... And somebody once told me, it meant as an insult, as he was going out the door, he said, do you know the problem with you is? He says, all you ever do is teach the word. <laughs> Thank you. But that's, that, that's the kind of stage we've got to. That here were the Israelites in their camp. They weren't looking to the word of God. They weren't looking to the prophets of God. They were looking to their own vain imaginations. What can we do to get God on our side? We'll bring it, the ark of God, into the camp and it will make sure that God's there as well. I don't want to stand here and give you the impression that we've got it all right. We haven't. But I believe firmly, and I've believed that all these years, these tw last 20 years that we've been going, that the Church has to be founded in the Word of God. It can't be anything else. Yes, we'll have wee bits and foibles that people get involved in, but we should make sure that we're 
We're grounded. We're stood firm on the word of God because there is nothing else. That's what we have from God. That's the absolute truth that he has given us. The whole world is into relativity at the moment there. You know, just whatever floats your boat. Or even in the days that Samuel lived here, when Samson was a judge amongst the people, when when, uh, all these other judges were there, they ruled for a while and they kept the place together for a while and then it says, and then Israel did what they thought was right in their own eyes. And that's what's happening today. Even within the church, people are just doing what they think is right in their own eyes. We have to stick to the word. And so when they learned, that's the Philistines, when they learned that the ark had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid. A god has come into the camp, they said. Oh no, nothing like this has ever happened before. We're doomed. Who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? They are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the wilderness. And then somebody comes up and says, Be strong, Philistines, be men, or you will be subject to the Hebrews, as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines knew about the reputation of the Hebrew God. And they thought because this symbol of the Hebrew God had arrived in the camp, the Philistines variably thought they were finished. And then someone stood up and said, let's fight. Oh, how we could learn from these non-Christians. Non-Christians seem to know more about Christianity than we do, don't they? They know when our behaviour is out of order and when our behaviour is right. And believe me, I've told you this before, people are watching you. As soon as you step out of line, they jump in and say, I thought you were a Christian. And you thought nobody was watching you. And suddenly, your witness is gone. And you have to get before God. Or maybe you have to say your ten Hail Marys and your five Our Fathers. And that's your ritual over it. The same thing as bringing the ark into the camp. It's a worthless, lucky charm. The road for the Christian won't always be easy, as many of you have found. We think sometimes because God is with us that we don't have to try. There are harsh places on the road that you follow. There are places where you'll lose loved ones. There are places where you'll have to face illness and sickness. But I can guarantee you in those places you'll not face it alone. You'll face it with a Lord and Saviour that loves you and wants to bless you. And you'll face it, hopefully, with a fellowship round about you that will look after you and do their best for you. If you think it's easy, then you're not doing it right. It's difficult being a Christian, being a true Christian. Try running a fellowship for 20 years and then tell me the road's easy. But what did Jesus say? In this world you will have trouble, but fear not, for I have overcome the world. So the Philistines fought and the Israelites were defeated and every man fled to his tent. The slaughter was very great and Israel lost 30,000 foot soldiers. The ark of the God was captured and Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, died. So the first time out they lost 4,000. When they thought they had God with them, they lost 30,000. Now I want you to think about that. Kerluk, Braidwood, Lanark and Forth, add them together, lost a lot. Every man, woman and child. 
And those four little towns, dead. That's the kind of things that Christians around the world are having to face on a daily basis. We get off light in this country. Because somebody laughs at us or says the wrong word to us, we think we're being persecuted. There are thousands losing their life on a daily basis. So this great, they thought the Lord was with them. They thought we bring the ark and God will be with us. They were all dead. Israel was beaten. The priests were dead. The ark was captured. And that same day, Benjamin ran from the battle line at verse 12 and went to Shiloh, Shiloh with his clothes torn and dust in his head. 20 miles to Shiloh from where they were fighting at Ebenezer and Aphek. It's interesting. I found a little bit that said that Jewish tradition says that this Benjamite was a young man named Saul who would be later be the king, the first king of Israel, but that's unconfirmed. Um, Sky News will have it later. (laughs) So when this guy arrived, there was Eli sitting on his chair by the side of the road, watching because his heart feared for the ark of God. And when the man entered the town and told what happened, the whole town set up a cry. Eli was worried about the ark. We get the impression, the whole structure of the way that that sentence is put together, we get the impression that Eli had refused to allow the ark to be taken from Shiloh. But his sons, Phineas and Hophni, who were destined to die, they had overruled him. And Eli heard the outcry at verse 14 and asked, What is the meaning of this uproar? And the man hurried over to Eli, who was 98 years old and whose eyes had failed so that he could not see. He told Eli, I have just come from the battle line. I fled from it this very day. And Eli asked, what happened, my son? So you get the impression, Eli's sitting there in this chair now. This was no ordinary chair. This was the sort of chair of authority for the high priest. It was like one of these old-fashioned piano stools, but bigger. You know, the one with the wings on the side. It had no back on it, but it had sort of handle wings on the side of the and he sat there and and people who would walk past if they didn't recognize him as being the high priest if he was sitting in that chair then that was who he was that was the chair of authority that was the place where it should have been in fact it's because of these various chairs in the old testament that's where we get our, our our name for the seats of learning in our universities the chair of physics or the chair of chemistry the guy you know was actually there he who sits in that chair has the authority. So that's just a passing bit there. So Eli sits the guy down. The man who brought the news replied at verse 17, Israel fled before the Philistines and the army has suffered heavy losses. Also your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead and the ark of God has been captured. And when he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell backward off his chair by the side of the gate. His neck was broken and he died. He was an old man and he was heavy and he had led Israel 40 years. The death of his sons produced no reaction, but when he was told the ark had been captured, he literally fainted and fell off the stool backwards. And of course, being an old man and heavy, you can picture him, brittle bone disease, whatever, his neck was broken and he died. Now God had prophesied to him previously that Hophni and Phinehas would die on the same day, and they did this very day, and here Eli died the very same day as well. God's prophecy came true. And I wonder, you know, when he heard about Eli and Phineas dying and the ark being captured, I often think, was God being gracious to Eli? Your time's over, Eli. 
rather than leave you on earth to suffer and more for all this come up. Your time's finished, son. And we'll just finish this off quickly. His daughter-in-law, the wife of Phineas, was pregnant and near the time of her delivery. When she heard the news that the ark of God had been captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she went into labour and gave birth, but was overcome by her labour pains. As she was dying, the woman attending her said, Don't despair, you have given birth to a son. But she did not respond or pay any attention. So the shock sends this woman into labour. She loses the will to live. And it was a great honour to have a, a male baby in, in Jewish times at this point in time. Hence Hannah and Samuel at that earlier in the chapter. But this woman was so completely distraught, she literally gave up in life. She named the baby Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel because of the capture of the ark of God and the deaths of her father-in-law and her husband. She said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. Ichabod means the glory has departed. The glory had not departed because the ark was taken. The glory, the ark was taken because the glory had departed. The ark should never have been there. It was up to the people now to get on their knees and repent of their wrongness. And we'll find in the next few chapters just exactly what happens to the ark. You know, when many people ask the same question, they would be looking at that and saying, how could God allow this something, this terrible thing to happen to us? How could God allow his ark to be taken? The glory had departed because Israel had departed. If you're not feeling the glory of God in your life, then you should be. And I encourage you this morning, irrespective of your circumstances, don't look to men's devices. Don't look to this little book that says, if you do this and do that and do the next thing, God will be good. God will be pleased with you. God's pleased with you. God was so pleased with you that he gave his only son to die on the cross for you. Don't give up on that. Even although the world throws everything at you, even though Satan throws everything that he's got at you, God is still with you. Keep that humble heart. Keep yourself in that place where God can speak to you. We spoke about that last week. Where God can call you. Where God can take you into a place of peace. He is my strength and my high tower. In him I will find salvation. So the next time we'll look at what happens to the ark in Philistine hands. But let us remember that all we do and say for God must come from a humble heart and not from superstitious nonsense. Let's pray.